0: You're listening to Echo Zoe Radio, episode 39 for July 2011 with guest Scott Klusendorf on The Case for Life. Welcome to Echo Zoe Radio. I'm your host, Andy Olson, proprietor of EchoZoe.com. Thanks for joining me once again. This is episode 39, the July 2011 episode. This month, my guest is Scott Klusendorf. Scott is the president of the Life Training Institute on the web at ProLifeTraining.com. He travels the country to speak to Christian groups about how to defend the pro-life point of view. He has also lectured at Biola University as a bioethicist and is the author of The Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture. Scott and I chatted via Skype on Friday, July 8, 2011 about defending the pro-life point of view, as well as answering some common objections from the other side of the debate. Welcome, Scott. Uh, Thanks so much for taking some time on a Friday afternoon to come on and uh, talk to Echo Zoe Radio.
1: Glad to be on, Andy.
0: So today we're going to talk about abortion little bit of a shift from my normal topics. You've got some materials called uh, Making
1: Abortion Unthinkable? Yes, and a book called The Case for Life, Case Equipping for life. Christians to uh, Engage the Culture.
0: And then you're with, uh, your organization's called Life Training Institute? Correct. Just to get started, what, what, tell us a little bit about your background and, and the mission of Life Training Institute.
1: My background is, uh, my undergrad degree was in English literature, and you might think, <laughs> well, what does that have to do with apologetics, and especially pro-life apologetics. One thing an English degree does for you is it teaches you to organize your thoughts. You have to learn to present your ideas clearly in papers, and all it takes is one or two hard-nosed English professors who really put a premium on clear writing, and all of a sudden you find that you have an ability to organize your thoughts that you didn't have before. So that (laughs) has served me quite well. Uh, My master's degree is in Christian apologetics from Biola, and I started Life Training Institute in 2004 to equip Christians to make a case for the pro-life view persuasively and graciously. Uh, and I have benefited over the years from great Christian thinkers like Greg Kokel, uh J.P. Moreland, William Lane Craig, Catholic philosophers like Patrick Lee uh, and Robert George and others who have really helped shape the way I look at this issue and helped me think about it philosophically.
0: Okay. Now, my show tends to be theological in nature, and you know, I talk mm-hmm. about doctrine, whether it be Orthodox and Reform, like Doctrines of Grace and Souls of the Reformation, or false right. teachings, like Open Theism, Word of Faith, Mormonism. Well, I um,
1: believe all those things. No, I'm
0: kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, but our theology really informs our morality, and our morality then in turn forms our political views. And yes. So... How would you frame this issue of abortion? Would it be primarily theological or moral, political, philosophical, all of the above, none of the above?
1: Uh, My answer is yes. It's (laughs) it's all of those things. Um, It's certainly moral because it involves the question, are we talking about the unjust killing of a defenseless human being? It's Mm -hmm. certainly theological because it gets to the question, what makes human beings valuable? Are we valuable because of the kind of thing we are, creatures who bear the image of our Maker, or are we only valuable functionally for the things we can do or immediately exercise? So there's an inherently theological aspect to this. Uh, also, just on a side note, um, I'm as big a defender of the gospel as you'll find. I'm definitely reformed in my thinking. I'm a five point Calvinist, uh, understand and hold to the doctrines of grace. But I will tell you this. uh, We need to ask ourselves the question, who is the gospel presented to? Well, the answer is obvious, human beings. Mm -hmm. But what happens to people's ability to process that gospel when the very definition of what it means to be a human being is up for grabs? And that's where we are in the culture today, Andy. Uh, The definition of what it means to be human and what makes us valuable as human beings is up for grabs. And it's kind of hard to teach that a man must believe in Jesus alone for salvation, must repent and turn from the kingdom of self, must throw himself with all abandoned on Christ as his only means of hope when nobody knows what a man is anymore.
0: Well said. So as you get into uh, discussing abortion, what is your fundamental premise or question that you start with, and how does that drive the debate?
1: The fundamental case I'm arguing is that elective abortion unjustly takes the life of a defenseless human, we- human being. And I'm going to defend that two ways whenever I do debates. I'm going to defend it scientifically by arguing that the unborn are distinct, living, and whole members of the human family. And I'm going to argue philosophically that there's no essential difference between the embryo you once were and the adult you are today that would have justified killing you at that earlier stage of development. Differences of size and level of development and environment and degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying you had no right to life then, but you do now. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and that you use the acronym SLED, S-L-E-D?
1: That's correct, which I uh, have borrowed from Stephen Schwartz, who initially uh, proposed that acronym. I have modified it to suit my own needs, so don't blame him if uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not as good as it once was. But... But the idea being that the four essential differences between that embryo you once were and what you are today don't justify killing you. And as you say, that acronym, SLED, is a helpful reminder of those four differences. And let's just take a minute and look at them. Size, Mm -hmm. certainly you were smaller as an embryo than you are today. But since when does your body size, as a matter of principle, mean that we can kill you? We don't think two-year-olds who are smaller than 10-year-olds have a greater or have a lesser right to life than the 10-year-old. We don't think it's less a crime to beat a small child than it is a larger one. So body size, as a matter of principle, does not strike us uh, as something that is morally relevant in determining who lives and who dies. What about your level of development? Well, of Mm -hmm. course, you were less developed, Andy, as an embryo than you are today. But uh, since when is that decisive? Four-year-old girls do not even have a developed reproductive system yet, but we don't think they are less human and valuable than a 24-year-old young woman who does. We don't think, for example, that someone with an IQ uh, off the charts is somehow more human and valuable than the one who can barely break uh, double digits. So Mm -hmm. the idea that we are valuable by some form of development really strikes us as providing for savage inequality, because obviously. Uh, We all have differing levels of development in differing areas of our lives. And if we're going to have human equality, we can't base it on something as vacuous as our level of development at a given point in our existence. What about in our environment where we're located? We've done size, level of development, now the E in that acronym. We were certainly in a different location when we were in the womb but since when does where we are have any bearing on who we are? When you walked from your uh, living room into the studio you're using to do this uh, interview, uh, you changed location, but you didn't stop being you. And if that's true, how does a journey of eight inches down the birth canal suddenly transform you from non-human, non-valuable thing that we can kill to valuable human being that we can't? And my short answer is, if you weren't invaluable already you don't get there by changing your address Mm -hmm. and finally degree of dependency sure you depended on your mother for survival but since when does dependency on another human being mean that we can kill you newborns for that matter oftentimes can only tolerate their mother's milk they're unable to take formula does it follow that a newborn who can only tolerate his mother's milk and must depend on her body for nourishment can be neglected and killed simply because he can't live independent of her What about conjoined twins? Do we think Mm -hmm. they forfeit the right to life simply because they share each other's bodily systems in many cases? When we look at those four areas, size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency, it's obvious that none of those four differences between the embryos we once were and the adults we are today justify killing us at that earlier stage. I think that
0: bears out in our legal system. I mean, you can see that the instant a baby takes its first breath in all 50 states, it's, it's considered a human being and it's illegal to kill it.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. And uh, people get outraged, for example, when we hear of a two-year-old being allegedly beaten to death or killed by her mother. Uh, and yet they think that that same child, if it's just a little bit smaller mm-hmm. or in a different location or a little bit less developed, can be killed and there's no big deal. Right. Well, the one that really gets me is
0: uh, it. It 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 seems to to be that the value of a child is is derived by the mother, and that even if the mother's pregnant with the child, if for take for instance, right now my wife is pregnant. We're having our third third child due in about six weeks.
1: Congratulations.
0: Thank you. If I were to wail out and kick her in the stomach and bring about an end to that child's life, I would be charged with murder. Yes, because she wants the baby.
1: Right. Even as the father. That's correct. And you are making a very good point, Andy, in that the child's value seems to derive from whether or not the mother wants the child. That's Mm -hmm. the sole legal determiner in deciding whether this child lives or dies. And that's just a horrific way to look at human value. I mean, the homeless are unwanted. Does that mean we can kill them? But you also raise another good point, and I'm glad you brought this up. Pro-lifers need to learn to use cognitive dissonance to help people understand the craziness of the legal system we're under right now. And you brought up a good point. If your wife is pregnant and you harm her or her unborn child, you will be charged with homicide and in some cases murder, depending on the state. And yet, If your wife has an abortion, there is no issue whatsoever. I remember in one debate when I was debating a Planned Parenthood representative out in California, I asked her this question. I said, you know, here in California, Scott Peterson has just been prosecuted for killing his unborn child, and he is going to jail. In fact, he will probably get the death penalty— Uh, This was before the penalty phase of the the trial had happened, but he had been convicted. And I said to this this official, I said, "Uh, Scott Peterson is going to get, more than likely, a conviction that will lead to his facing the death penalty for killing his unborn child. Why is it wrong for him to kill his unborn child? But if his wife had chosen to do so, it would have been just fine. Mm -hmm. And that was a very difficult moment in the debate. For my opponent because there is no easy way to answer that right
0: so we ask the question what is it and then work through the sled argument and it can do a lot to show a pro-choice or how we arrive at a pro-life point of view but inevitably this leads to this question about rape and incest and life of the mother and some of these more challenging questions that they bring up about the value of the child how do we address these dilemma the dilemmas that these issues raise
1: Well, we need to distinguish between questions that are challenging at an intellectual level and those that are challenging at an emotional level. Mm -hmm. And the things you just mentioned are not particularly difficult from an intellectual standpoint. They are challenging at an emotional standpoint. And the way we deal with these emotional arguments is to help people see that the real issue is not our feelings. The real issue is what is the unborn? Nobody, for example would say that we should be allowed to kill a two-year-old because it would help the family feel better about their finances. Suppose we had a mother who had 10 kids and she wanted to execute her three youngest children so the checkbook could balance at the end of the month. No one would say you can do that. But when it comes to the unborn, they'll say, why can't she do that? Well, obviously, in making those two types of very different claims, The person you're talking to is assuming the unborn are not human because they would never use that argument for economic hardship to justify killing a two-year-old. They only use it for justifying killing an unborn human. So what we want to do is flush out into the open that assumption that is being made that isn't being articulated. So I will use a tactic called trot out the toddler. Mm -hmm. Every time I hear someone give an argument for abortion rights, I ask myself instinctively, does this work as a good argument for killing a two year old? If the answer is no, I know that the person I'm conversing with is assuming the unborn are not human. Again, can you imagine anyone arguing that we ought to trust women to make their own personal decisions if we were talking about killing three year olds? They only make that claim when we're talking about fetuses, and the reason they make the claim is they're assuming, without argument, that the unborn aren't human, like the three-year-old. So in using Trot Out the Toddler, I'm able to flush that assumption into the open, and here's how it works. Let's say uh, I hear a critic say to me, well, you just don't care about poor women who can't afford another child. I'll say, okay, pretend I have a two-year-old in front of me, and I'll hold out my arm at waist height to illustrate the two-year-old invisibly there, pretend I have a two-year-old in front of me and his parents can't afford to feed him. Should they be allowed to kill him if that will help them uh, balance the budget at the end of the month? Well, no, you can't do that. Well, why not? Well, because he's a human being. Ah, if the unborn are human like that toddler, should we be killing the unborn in the name of economic hardship Mm and kill a toddler? Oh, but that's not the same thing. The unborn aren't human. The toddler is. Ah, that's the issue. Are the unborn human like the toddler? We've got to answer the question, what is the unborn? Before we answer the question, can we kill the unborn? And sadly, Andy, a lot of people want to skip right over that question and start talking about choice and trusting women and privacy and reproductive rights and all this other stuff. And every one of those objections assumes the unborn aren't human. It's what Francis Beckwith calls begging the question. You just assume what you're trying to prove. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've argued with people before on that poverty
0: question too, and it really uh, puts it in perspective to understand where we're coming from. As Americans, having a child and and an economic burden that might bring on a family might mean that they can't have cable TV. But If you think about it on a global scale, scale, it's entirely different. We've got families. uh, For instance, we sponsor a girl in Kenya. And the $40 a month we send her is is probably as much as her parents make in in that same month. Yeah. And you can't just throw somebody out because they're poor.
1: You'd get rid of half the population of the earth. That's exactly right. And, you know, again, let's go back to something we talked about a moment ago. Uh, The mother wanting the child uh, seemingly being the thing that matters. Mm -hmm. The homeless are unwanted. Uh, Does that mean we can kill them? Uh, Lots of people are unwanted. I've got a noisy neighbor who I (laughs) wish would not get on his drive mower and start mowing his lawn at 7.30 on a Saturday morning when I'm trying to sleep in. I can Mm -hmm. tell you right now, he's very much unwanted at that point. But that doesn't give me a justification to take his life. So we've got to deal with the question, what is the unborn, before we deal with the question, can we kill the unborn?
0: Another really popular one, especially as a, not only pro-life, but as a Christian, If you're debating with somebody who's pro-choice, they're going to argue that, well, if I can't abort this child, it's going to need to be put up for adoption. And are you willing to adopt all these children if we ban abortion?
1: Well, imagine if I came to that person and said, look, unless you agree to adopt my three sons by noon tomorrow, I shall execute them. Uh, If that person turns down my ultimatum, am I uh, justified executing my three sons? Well, obviously not. So again, uh, there seems to be this assumption there that we're not talking about an actual human being. But beyond that, notice the kind of attack this is. This is not a substantive reaction to the pro-life argument. It's what we call an ad hominem attack. You attack the person rather than the argument. Suppose I am unwilling to adopt a child. Suppose there are two million Americans wanting to adopt unwanted children. How does my alleged unwillingness to adopt a child justify an abortionist killing one? Mm -hmm. Imagine if I went to an orphanage and said, we're going to execute all these kids in the orphanage unless you people out there are willing to adopt them all. If no one steps forward to adopt, does that mean we can go ahead and kill these kids? So again, there seems to be this assumption that the unborn aren't already here, that they're not already human children, uh, and that's an assumption we need to flush into the open. Well, the thought that
0: just popped in my head is the Humane Society. And that often happens with unwanted dogs and cats, especially older ones. And many of these same people who want unrestricted abortion rights are the same ones that get really up in arms about a dog being put to sleep because nobody adopted it. And the Humane Society can't continue to to care for that animal and needs to make room for the next animal.
1: Yeah, although I must say I had to chuckle the other night on the news when it was uncovered that PETA is responsible for putting down huge numbers of dogs. Oh, really? Uh, you know, I did have to get a chuckle, not at the dogs being put down, but at their, their inconsistency there. Uh, but, but here's the thing. Um, suppose we have someone who comes to us and says something like the following. Well, you know what? You guys are pro-life, mm-hmm. and um, you claim to be against killing— but you're for the death penalty. And you're that's all for good putting people to death, that's uh, good one, but yeah. you don't want the unborn killed. You're inconsistent, therefore your case collapses. Now, mm-hmm. let's set aside for the moment a rather obvious observation, and here it is. As you say, many people who oppose the death penalty also support abortion. That's That's mm-hmm. a fact. Wouldn't it make them inconsistent because they support Abortion, but opposed the death penalty. So the sword would cut both ways. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, let's assume I am in, inconsistent in how I apply my pro-life ethic. Let's say it's true. I'm inconsistent. Does that disprove that the unborn are human? Could the unborn still be human even if I'm inconsistent in how I apply my ethic? And the obvious answer is, of course, the unborn can be human. And to know if the unborn are human, we don't look at the behavior of pro-lifers. We look at the science of embryology and ask the question, what kind of living thing are we dealing with here? And the science of embryology gives us a clear, definite answer. We're dealing with a distinct living and whole human being. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a good one. I like that. You know, Andy, I must say, we get a lot of these ad hominem attacks. And mm-hmm. I, I would divide—I would say 80% of the abortion rights rhetoric you hear on the street will fall into one of two categories. It will be people who simply assume the unborn aren't human, and thus they'll argue for things like privacy, trusting women to make their own decisions, uh, respecting people's personal religious beliefs, all of which— are things they would never say if we were talking about killing a Mm -hmm. two-year-old, which means they're assuming the unborn aren't human. The other thing people do, the the other half of this, are people who attack the person rather than refute the argument. But as Mm -hmm. an apologist, as someone who deals in theology, you see this all the time. Christopher Hitchens, to argue against God's existence, writes a book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, And his primary argument comes down to this. God does not exist because, get ready, people do horrible things in the name of religion. (laughs) Well, suppose that's true. Uh, Let's set aside for the moment that irreligion or secularism, as Dennis Prager has pointed out, has been responsible for millions more unjustified killings than religion ever was. But forget that for the moment. Could God still exist even if... Religious people do bad things? I think that's a pretty easy question to answer. Of course he could. Uh, Hitchens, if he wants to disprove Christianity in particular, he needs to go to the resurrection of Jesus and show that it didn't happen. Give us some evidence that uh, guys like William Lane Craig and Gary Habermas and uh, uh, others are wrong in their evidence for the resurrection, and then we simply take what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and the case is closed. Mm -hmm. But Hitchens doesn't do that. He's lazy. He attacks individual believers. He attacks religion. Uh, that's nothing but a gigantic ad hominem attack. Yeah, you keep coming
0: back to this, and I think the, that's a core issue in and of itself, is that um, ad hominem is an informal logical fallacy. Yes. People just are not taught logic and logical fallacies anymore. And so it, it really affects the way people think. You, you think entirely differently if you don't understand how, how logical premises
1: are put together. That's exactly right. And uh, it, it's like a person who, who is sharing their faith in Jesus with someone, and they make the claim that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And the person looks at them and says, well, I'm a Buddhist, so what are you saying? I'm going to hell? You know, and you get mm-hmm. that, that real in-your-face attack the person rather than refute the, the argument that they're putting forth. Mm-hmm. By the way, there's a good answer for that. Uh, When Next time someone says to you, what are you saying? Uh, you saying I'm going to hell. I I borrow from my friend Steve Wagner, and I say, only if you're as bad as I am. (laughs) Uh, Because then I can go right back to the gospel and say, you know, this isn't about good or bad. It's about uh, (laughs) who's covering our sins. What legal covering do I have for uh, myself? But anyway, another topic for another day.
0: Yeah, that's— that's been a big one for me you know throughout the podcast is uh, it's, it, i'm a big fan of Ray Comfort and uh, oh yeah the the law and gospel and that cuts through the the challenges to the gospel real quick yes so I have a challenge maybe a, a challenge that's a little more personal from to me and, I, and that is that uh, it's purely legal you know i'm personally conservative with strong libertarian leanings you know I differ from libertarians and then I, I acknowledge the role of natural law as it always has played yeah. a, a a part in our legal system. And right. As a Christian, I allow the Bible to be the foundation of my understanding of natural law, whereas a pure libertarian operates more under of a philosophy that only considers direct and overt consequences that one man's actions plays against another. But my fidelity to both the Scripture and our constitutional legal system raises a conundrum. On one hand, I see elective abortion as an evil, and I want it to be banned throughout the United States. But on the other hand, I believe elective abortion is murder— and recognize that murder is a crime that is defined and enforced by individual states. So if you kill a teenager, a toddler, or a a senior citizen, or anyone else, it's the state that's going to prosecute and imprison you, or even execute you in some states under certain circumstances. So do you have an opinion on the mechanics of an abortion ban within our legal system? And if so, how do you see that working through our American form of government?
1: I agree that to call abortion murder when it is currently legal is technically imprecise Mm -hmm. but I think we can make the argument that it is unjust killing immoral and evil and ought to be made illegal uh, for elective purposes and I think the federal government should be the one saying that the federal government certainly protects the rights of human beings to not be unjustly killed and that goes right back to our founding document which is not the Constitution It's the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence, as Lincoln argued, is the primary document where we derive basic fundamental human rights. And that document, as you well know, states that all human beings have certain rights that are fundamental in virtue of the kind of thing they are. Those rights are grounded in the concept of a transcendent creator. And so Mm -hmm. the question before us is really, Andy, the one we began with. What is the unborn? If the unborn are human beings, those natural rights that are espoused in the Declaration of Independence should apply to them like they do every one of us. And government's job is not to create a right to life for the unborn, but to merely recognize it the way it had to come to do with slaves— And with women having certain basic rights that were once denied them, natural rights are the foundation of the unborn's right (laughs) to life. And government doesn't create those rights. Government's job is to recognize them. And the government is acting unjustly when it fails to recognize the natural right to life of the unborn.
0: Sure. I think the point that I'm getting at, though, is not that government's creating the right, but that the, the fear is that if we were consistent with a constitutional legal system, it really would be a state's rights issue. But just like murder, murder isn't legal in any state. But the fear is that if you recognized a fetus as a human being and you put them under the protections that they have with murder laws and right to life, the fear is that there's going to be a state here and there, you know, California or New York or Massachusetts is going to say, well, we just disagree and we're going to, even, even if the Supreme Court decides that this is a human being from the moment of conception, we're going to refuse to enforce any laws against uh, ending the life of a baby.
1: Well, they're going to have a fun time doing that, given federal law supersedes state law. I mean, what are they going to do? Secede? Uh, there are states right now mm-hmm. that are not at all happy with Obamacare, and right. rightfully so, I might add. Mm -hmm. And we've got 29 states now, I think it is, or is it 39? I can't remember. One of those two. And they've issued lawsuits in federal court to reverse Obamacare, specifically the individual mandate that citizens must purchase health care insurance. But here's the important thing. They're fighting this out in the courts. They're working within the system right. to try to fix this. I don't buy the notion that just because there's a state that disagrees that the unborn are human, they're simply going to raise their fist up in defiance, and now we've got a civil war on our hands. Right. Uh, people once said that about uh, civil rights for blacks. Mm-hmm. In fact, prior to 1963, the, when we had the uh, passage of the Civil Rights Act, a majority of Southerners strongly disapproved of equal rights for African-Americans. But do you know, Andy, within three years of passage, a majority of Southerners now supported the new civil rights legislation. Mm -hmm. And this gets us to an important point. The law functions, as Aristotle pointed out, as a moral teacher. And we shouldn't assume that the law is not teaching things when it's passed. It it is teaching things. Uh, And as a result, when we have a law that protects the lives of the unborn, well, that's not the only thing we need to do culturally. It's a huge part of it. And I don't think we should assume that there's just going to be widespread disagreement about it. There's certainly widespread disagreement about Obamacare, but we don't see society unraveling because of it.
0: Mm-hmm. I kind of have taken more, you know, being such a strong libertarian, I've kind of taken more of a, a hope that, that maybe abortion would be like gun rights are turning out to be, where 15 years ago, it was almost unheard of to have to, for an average Joe citizen to get a permit to carry a concealed handgun. But then Florida passed their law allowing you to get a permit if you were a law-abiding citizen and passed their their tests and whatnot. And now we're to the point where it's like 39 states right, have what they call shall issue laws, where as long as you're not a criminal and you you, you pass some some testing and, and uh, background checks and whatnot, you can get a permit to carry a gun. And, and the states that don't like it are having a hard time arguing against it at this point because you're not getting the blood in the streets that people like to, to argue is going to happen if Joe Blow can carry right. a gun everywhere he goes. So my hope would be that abortion would be the same thing, that as it's turned back to where, like murder, a state would enforce the law, that you're going to have some states immediately that are saying they are going to say, well, we're just going to avoid the issue, but relatively quickly they're going to realize that, no, this is an issue we've got to address and, and we've been well, wrong we for the last 30 years.
1: Yeah, and, and uh, we probably part company a little bit on how we view this. Uh, mm-hmm. Here's where I do agree with you. While we are waiting for the federal courts to be amended so that they no longer all, are the sole determiner of what is allowed in terms of abortion restrictions— Because right now, that's where we are. Mm -hmm. Uh, States don't have the right to pass laws protecting the unborn. The federal government, uh, at least the executive and legislative branches, do not have the right to pass laws protecting the unborn because the federal courts have co-opted the issue and told the other two branches get lost. Until that is dealt with and the federal courts are trimmed back in their scope, we're not able to do much except state by state pass certain abortion control legislation mm-hmm. that limits the evil done, but certainly does not come anywhere close to full protection for the unborn. Right. In that environment, I'm with you. I want to see states go at through least have the individually, option. at least have the option to, per- to pass some laws. Mm-hmm. But as an overall strategy, that's not going to work. We're going to be right back where we were with the Missouri Compromise. We're going Mm -hmm. to have slave states and non-slave states. And if we take the position that this is strictly a states' rights issue, then we are denying the natural rights that are found in the... And that's the conundrum
0: from the the pure libertarian point of view, is the libertarian party, for instance, is... Uh, this is one of the few issues they let people disagree on is abortion. Yeah. And it, it seems to be a split. About half of them say it's a woman's right to do with her body, you know, kind of argument. And, and at least they're consistent because they'll say if she wants to take heroin that she can do that too. But Right. But th- then they also allow that some people are going to argue that the unborn child is a human being and has the same right to life that the mother has.
1: Well, this is, this is exactly the, the debate Lincoln and Douglas were having over slavery. Mm-hmm. Douglas was arguing that he didn't care whether uh, slavery was voted up or down, that each state should have the right to vote it up or vote it down, according to their preference. His was the sure. personally opposed position. Lincoln came along and said, now, wait a minute. If the African-American man is indeed a man, then the rights that are found in the Declaration apply to him as they do to each of us. And if that's true, you can't say you'd just as soon see a state voted up or vote it down right because to say that it's okay for a state to legislate what you admit is morally wrong doesn't fly mm-hmm. and i would say the same thing applies here if the unborn are human and if uh they have natural rights flowing from the kind of thing they are then the declaration protects them right and that supersedes any good that we might envision coming from individual states making up their own mind. Look, I think Mm -hmm. individual states should have a a great deal of latitude in making up their own minds. Uh, You're not going to find me disagreeing with uh, those who want to argue that states have been curtailed and handcuffed by an overarching uh, and bloated federal bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. I'm with you on that. But on fundamental questions of protecting innocent human life, We must honor what's in the Declaration, and the Declaration is not something states are free to look at and pick and choose those parts they want. It ought to govern our entire approach to human rights. It's the philosophical background and backbone of everything we do, and if we toss that out, then uh, we really are dealing with strictly positive law rather than law that's grounded in a transcendent source.
0: I think you and I agree more than it sounds like we agree
1: the the issue i just see
0: is that like i say more murder unless uh somehow the murder involves crossing state lines generally murder is something that is enforced by a state and and my that's my fear is that on one hand the way i see our legal system it would really need to to fall under a state issue but the fear is that there's going to be a
1: state that's that refuses well, see, now, to now, right now you are there uh, i think perhaps confusing two things we need to distinguish. There's enforcement of law, and then there is the law itself. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think many pro-lifers would disagree with the proposition that says, look, there needs to be a federal statute that says all unborn humans have a right to life, just like everybody else, mm-hmm. but also recognizing that each state is going to prosecute unjust killings In slightly different ways from others, sure. But that wouldn't change the fundamental principle that human beings, including the unborn, shouldn't be shouldn't be killed unjustly. Sure. Uh, Even now, if you kill a two-year-old in California, it might be prosecuted differently than if you kill one in Maine. Right. You know, and even without dealing with the unborn, just dealing with women who kill their newborns, leave them in trash cans so they Mm -hmm. go on to the prom, like happened in New Jersey several years ago. Each state is going to have differing ways they prosecute that, but there will be a prosecution, there will be consequences, and the consequences flow from the overarching belief and law that you can't just kill innocent human beings.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we're totally in agreement there. I wanted, not to dwell on this too long, I, I wanted to also, as long as we're talking about the mechanics of the legal system, yeah. uh, I wanted to ask about the, a, a more common objection, which is, are we going to uh, imprison these uh, poor, helpless mothers that, uh, for whatever reason, chose to have an abortion once it's made illegal to do so? So how do we address this issue that it's made a crime and people, people break laws all the time?
1: When someone says to you, oh, you want to pass laws protecting the unborn, so what does that mean? You want to give women who have killed their unborn children the death penalty? You want to prosecute them and throw them into prison? And our reply needs to be two simple words, that depends.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, If I came to you and said, uh, a mother has killed her two-year-old, should she go to the gas chamber right now? What would your answer be? Uh, That depends. There you go. You would not say, yeah, absolutely. Well, what if I told you she accidentally backed over her two-year-old? Does that change the picture? Yeah. What yeah, if I told it's... you her live-in boyfriend had got her, got her intoxicated and had slipped substances into her wine glass, and uh, the woman reacted by getting a little too aggressive with her two-year-old, shook her a little too hard, and the kid died? You still want to send her to the gas chamber?
0: Well, it's probably going to be more like second-degree murder, and
1: she might spend... Correct. um, Correct. Uh, And what I'm getting at here is that in each of these cases, we've got to take into account the intent, the motive, mm -hmm. and all of the circumstances surrounding the crime. No jury anywhere is going to say, hey, you know what, we'd really like to get to the beach, we don't need to hear this case, she killed her kid, that's all we need to know, death penalty. That never going to happen. They're going to mm-hmm. hear all of the evidence. They're going to hear all of the uh, uh, stuff related to it. They want to know uh, what, what was going on with the uh, family members, what was going on with uh, everyone else involved, and there would be no way that we would just automatically convict, let alone prosecute by putting you in the death chamber, without knowing all of the other stuff. So the short answer is that depends. Now, having said that, Should there be consequences for unjustly taking the life of an innocent human being? You betcha. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Uh, What's wrong with a law that says that if you take the life of a defenseless human being, uh, there's going to be consequences? Uh, Obviously, there should be consequences. Uh, But what those consequences will be will depend on, in large measure, the circumstances surrounding the crime.
0: Maybe real quickly, what's the most unique argument you can recall ever encountering?
1: Um... Most unique argument for abortion rights? Yeah. I think the most powerful argument they have is Judith Jarvis Thompson's violinist argument. Here's how it goes. Judith Jarvis Thompson, in her 1971 essay, A Defense of Abortion, argued that while it's true—at least she stipulated for the sake of argument that it's true—while it's true that the unborn are human, and she even calls them persons and says they have a right to life, it is not true that— the unborn may use the body of the mother against the mother's will. And she spins a little uh, uh, tale to help us see this. She says, imagine you wake up one morning, find yourself connected to a violinist who's been put there by the Society of Music Lovers, and this violinist needs your kidney to survive for nine months, after which you are free to detach, and he will get on with his life and you will get on with yours. But for nine months, though it's an inconvenience to you, Uh, too bad. He has a right to life. He needs your kidney to live, and therefore you must uh, allow him to be attached to you. Now, Thompson then comes back and says, now, it would certainly be nice if you allowed your body to be used this way, but must you? Now, I think that raises some interesting questions. I mean, it's always powerful when someone grants the major premise of your argument Mm -hmm. and bites the bullet and says, I'm going to show that you're wrong anyway. Uh, And that's what she's attempting to do here. She's not playing around with stupid arguments like back alley abortions or, you know, privacy or choice or any of these other typical street things we hear. She's playing at a much more sophisticated level and basically saying that the unborn, though human, do not have a right to use the mother's body any more than that miniature violinist does. Or an intruder, as she goes on to argue. If you find an intruder in your house, you certainly have a right to remove him. Likewise, the woman has a right to remove the intruder fetus. Here's the key way to look at it. Can I
0: tackle this real quick as an amateur before you as a professor, take it? Please, please, go for it. I think the the first thing that strikes me is that the difference is the woman had a choice that kicked the whole thing off. When she slept with the father and got pregnant, she was taking on an element of risk of consequences. And one of those risks would be that she would get pregnant.
1: Right. I, I agree. That is a fundamental flaw. Yeah.
0: Whereas your your guy that gets connected to a violinist, uh, he didn't do anything. <laughs> There's he didn't do right. any, he didn't do anything to put himself in a position where he's the only one that can be connected to this violinist for for 9 months.
1: Correct. And and philosophers who support abortion rights such as Marianne Warren have come along and said Thompson's argument works conclusively in the case of rape but nowhere else for the very reason you just described. Mhm. And, and I think that is a fundamental flaw. I think there are others. And the key way to approach this is to look at this thing and say, is a woman being hooked up to her own child parallel to the woman being hooked up to the stranger violinist? And if not, Thompson's case crumbles. Right. And right away, I think the parallels fall apart. And you just hit on one of the biggest ones. Here, here's a couple others that I think we need to look at. Abortion is much more than merely withholding support it is actively killing another human being through dismemberment, poisoning, burning, and other methods. Mm -hmm. Uh, As Frank Beckwith points out, he says, you know, calling abortion merely the withholding of support is kind of like smothering someone with a pillow and calling it the withdrawing of oxygen. I mean, we've got a whole lot more going on here than just withholding support We're actively killing another human being. Uh, Using Thompson's logic, if I come home and find an intruder in my home, I not only have a right to ask him to leave. I may cut him up in pieces and put his body parts in the trash can in the alley. That's how bad this parallel starts to stink when you look at what she's really saying here. This is not merely withholding support. It's actively killing another human being through the most violent uh, means available. A third thing here is the very thing that makes it plausible, at least in theory, to buy Thompson's premise, namely that the violinist is a stranger who is unnaturally hooked up to the mother, or to the woman, is precisely the thing that is not the case when we look at the mother's relationship to her own child. Mm -hmm. Where the child is not a stranger, the child is naturally connected to her mother. By the way, if the child doesn't belong, where does it belong? Uh, Thompson never tells us. (laughs) Sure. the parallel there just, I think, utterly collapses. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't have a stranger, you have the mother's own child. What if the woman woke up and found herself, instead of connected to a stranger violinist, surgically connected to her own five-year-old? Would Thompson still think her argument would resonate at an intuitive level with the mother? Uh, that, that's just crazy. Yeah. So those are just a couple of things that are wrong with it. There's more, and in my book I've I've got a whole chapter on what's wrong with this whole radical bodily rights uh, argument. But, mm-hmm. but those are the biggies.
0: And that's the next place I wanted to go is to wrap up by uh, asking you, uh, you've got some really powerful resources that we've barely even touched on. And could you share with us where people could find your resources and, and others that you might recommend?
1: Well, the local cigar store. No, no, <laughs> uh, but seriously, um, you could uh, go to ProLifeTraining.com. ProLifeTraining.com, and you can also go to CaseForLife.com. Okay. Both those websites uh, we run, and they provide uh, pro-life training materials. You can also get my book, The Case for Life. Uh, Amazon has it, uh, or you go to Crossway, who, who is the publisher, and mm-hmm. get it. Uh, the Case for Life, equipping Christians to engage the culture, and there I provide a uh, defense of the pro-life view. And what I try to do in my book is, is I don't pretend I'm an original thinker. I view myself as a translator. I take what the really smart guys say and try to make it understandable to lay people so they can use it in their daily conversations. And in the case for life, that's what I've done. Well,
0: thanks. I will link to those. So if anybody's interested in those and uh, didn't have a pen handy to write it down, um, check out echozoi.com slash 39 for uh, episode thirty-nine. And uh, we'll have links to those there. And anything else you want to touch on before we close, Scott?
1: One thing I will say is that if you have any listeners, Andy, who want um, a more sophisticated approach, right on our website, on the homepage, we've got the lecture notes from my Biola University MA class that I taught where I was teaching advanced pro-life apologetics to MA students. And if any would like to go to the the prolife training uh dot com website. Right on the home page there there is a link to the notes from that class. And you can also go to uh YouTube. Oh, yeah, I, I was gonna Biola, say
0: I, I found Biola that on
1: University. YouTube. Yep. Mm-hmm. Biola University. University has the lectures that I gave at that graduate level course and you can use the notes and the video. Doesn't cost you a thing. You can mm-hmm. take the course without well, the the internet's anything. wonderful.
0: Between YouTube yeah. and, and iTunes U, it's just amazing what you can of courses is, you can take, is, take online without uh, paying a dime.
1: That's exactly right. Now, if you want credit, you're going to have to write a check to buy all of <laughs> yeah. Beyond that, uh, uh, it's right there.
0: Well, I, I tell you what, Scott, um, I first encountered your materials through Greg Kokel. Good man. He's a, a past guest. I've always really uh, admired Greg. He's fantastic. And I didn't, quite, I didn't get it directly, but I kind of uh, absorbed it uh, by osmosis here and there a lot of this material. And it's been very, very helpful for me as I've, you know, I, I find myself getting into political arguments from time to time. And, and some of those times abortion comes up and I have a tough time with the discipline that, that it takes to, to use Greg's tactical approach. Uh, I certainly attempt to whatever I, I can, but, um, this is one it's issue. It's more fun
1: that, to just yell it.
0: <laughs> it is sometimes more fun to yell at people, <laughs> but, uh, No, this is one issue that the materials are so good that it's much easier for me to use a more of a tactical approach. It's much easier for me to settle down, let that emotion kind of wash away and just get to the nitty gritty of the the whole issue. And I've really appreciated uh, both your direct materials and the stuff that I've gotten through Greg Kokel
1: and and other sources. And uh,
0: so I thank you greatly for for taking your time this uh, Friday afternoon and and coming on and speaking with me.
1: well, you are so welcome, and uh, I'm glad to be part of it, and uh, I look forward to making more use of your site. You've got some great interviews you've done, and uh, thank you. Uh, I'm a latecomer to your material, but I, I won't be a, a non-participant. Uh, I will be uh, a regular looking at your site. Well, thanks. Point. I appreciate that, and I, I hope others uh, are, are
0: blessed by it as well. And, and we have, I was kind of telling you a little bit before we started, but we'll have some, uh, actually some bigger announcements as far as the site goes. But, uh, yeah hopefully I can bring out in the next month or two. But uh,
1: Well, you're doing fantastic work, and I'm glad you invited me to be part of it.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much, and uh, I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you, Andy. Have a good day.
1: You too. That wraps up yet
0: another episode. Thanks for listening. Check out the show notes at EchoZoe.com 39 for detailed outline and notes for this episode, as well as other resources on the subject. Also, you can get connected to EchoZoe on Twitter and Facebook. The Twitter account recently received a major change because it is mostly used as my personal account. The username was changed and a new account was created with the old username. At EchoZoe is now the dedicated account and will be used solely for Echo Zoe. While my personal account, which you are welcome to follow, is now at AVGAndy, short for Average Andy. Kind of like Average Joe, but for me. This change was an important one to make in light of upcoming changes with EchoZoe, which I hope to announce before the end of the summer. The best way to find EchoZoe on Facebook is through a referral link that I set up. Uh, just go to EchoZoe.com Facebook, or search for EchoZoe within Facebook. Also at the website... You can sign up for email alerts to let you know when new episodes come out. Thanks again for listening, and Lord willing, I'll be back in August with episode number 40.